Well, this morning, open your Bibles, if you have them, to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, because we return this morning to our study of the psalm that comes to us as Psalm 42, but in reality is actually a psalm that includes Psalm 43 in its original form. And the reason we know that is because before the Bible had chapter and verse designations given to it, all of the internal evidence points to the fact that the psalmist who wrote Psalm 42 also wrote Psalm 43 to be a song, one song for the people of God. And that internal evidence that I'm speaking of is seen in how the first section from verse 1 of Psalm 42 until verse 5 has this beautiful spiritual soliloquy that comes to us and then repeats itself another two times. So first here in Psalm 42, 5, and then for the second time in verse 6 through verse 11, where the psalmist repeats almost verbatim what he says in verse 5, and then lastly in Psalm 43, verse 1 till verse 5, becomes the third section that also culminates with this same refrain. And this repeating section, you may want to know, is the expression that he says, starting in verse 4, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise Him for the salvation of His presence. That is the eternal, internal evidence that shows us the original Psalm 42 and 43 were one psalm together. But much more than just repeating those words over and over again is the fact that the idea behind these words are really the main thrust of this psalm in and of itself. Namely, that when my soul is in despair, when I am disturbed within me, I must remind myself of those things that I am certain of about God and theology and salvation. I must actively, volitionally, intentionally shake myself out of my fear and my pain and my depression and preach to myself the truth that I know to quiet the lies of the enemy that I hear. Now that in a nutshell is what it is that we've learned last time and again this time through this wonderful psalm. And though there's so much more that's going to be revealed here in these verses, the main idea that goes all the way through verse 40, uh, Psalm 42, verse 1, all the way to the end of Psalm 43, is this idea that the believer must never allow the voice of the enemy, that as believers, we should never let his voice, that voice, sin's voice, drown out the voice of the Spirit. That we as believers, both then and now today, must be in constant position of readiness to fight for the battle of our minds while we struggle in this fallen, fallen world. And so talking to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves is the key instruction that we've got last time and we are called to embrace. Preach the truth to your soul, O believer. Preach to yourself. Don't listen to the whispers and the lies of your own uh, competing voices in your head. Very, very simple but very vital teaching that we're going to see in this psalm. And so we began our study last time unfolding this main idea just to set the stage for what now comes to us as part two of our message. This is a prayer to the God of my life, part two, a study of Psalm 42 and 43. Now, according to Dr. Lynn Lentz, author of the book, 
unjoy, not enjoy, but unjoy, obviously very popular among many people. Uh, Seven million Christians in the U.S. experience major depression each year. While attendance of religious services might be protective, it's not protective enough, he says. The number of depressed Christians in America is not something you can just look up in a medical journal or a public health website. This is because all the people who identify as Christians are not the same. Different denominations, different rates of church attendance, different levels of adherence to orthodoxy. While it could be argued that the prevalence of Christians with depression should be measured as a part of a regularly followed metric in public life, it is not. And then he says this. For my calculations, I use the data from 2017, 2018, 2019 from the Pew Research Center. And from their data set, it's estimated that 106.8 million Christians attend church at least once or twice a month. He doesn't define Christian. Very important. The National Institute of Mental Health lists the prevalence of having major depressive episodes in 2017 at 7.1%. So applying the 7.1% to the 106.8 million Christians allows us to arrive at the number 7.6 million. 7.6 million, I know, is that kind of strange, uh, are in a depressed, I'm depressed reading it, personally. (laughs) But even though there's really no way to ensure that his calculations are right, needless to say, many in the church obviously struggle with what could be called depression, whether it be clinical or not, so much so that another doctor who was the assistant to the royal physician who cared for the king of England in the 20th century, wrote a book by the title, and we mentioned it last time, Spiritual Depression. Spiritual Depression by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And that medical doctor had gone into some one of England's best-known evangelical pastors, made this book very, very famous because he makes this following analysis. Listen. Spiritual depression or unhappiness in the Christian life is very often due to our failure to realize the greatness of the gospel. Some think it's merely a message of forgiveness. Others conceive of it as only moral in nature. Still others see it as something good and beautiful. The truth of the matter is this. The gospel is a whole view of life. It is not partial or piecemeal. Consequently, the whole man must be involved in it. The mind, the heart, the will. He says many Christians are not content to simply are, are content to simply live on their feelings. Their head isn't engaged at all. But we must put things in the right order: mind, heart, and will. Truth must be first. Once we know the truth, it will move to the heart. And once the heart is engaged, your greatest desire will be to live it. The heart is always the influence through the understanding, which in turn will work upon the will. End quote. So what the good doctor has just really taught us in that writing is the underlining thesis of everything that we're going to learn today. That is the underlining foundation of what it is the psalmist is talking about and what we're going to see unfold in the verses before us. And I say that because Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, we have three areas of remembrance, three areas of remembrance that we can preach to ourselves to combat spiritual depression. Three points of remembrance that the psalmist gives us that drew him out of despair and doubt and therefore become a map for us as well. And you're going to see how each one of these parts that I'm about to give you are related to combating this depression, this despair with joy, joy in the truth. 
joy and understanding the truth. I'm going to give them to you up front so you understand them. The three thoughts to remember are, number one, remember the joy of public devotion to God. You're going to see that in verse 1 through 5 of Psalm 42. Remember the joy of private dependence upon God. And you're going to see that again in Psalm 42, verses 6 to 11. And then lastly, remember the joy of personal delight in God. Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to repeat that over and over again as we go through this. But you may be asking yourself, why am I focusing on joy when the Psalms seem so focused on despair? Because all throughout this psalm, as I'm going to point out to you, are hints of joy. Hints of joy that should belong to the believer. Not the joy of the present, but the joy of the past and the joy of the future. You'll see this quickly with me. Psalm 42, verse 4, he talks about joy from when I was thankful. Psalm 42, 5, praise one day again will be on my lips. Psalm 42, 8, song one day I will sing. There will be a song that comes out of my heart. Uh, Psalm 42, 11, praise one day again I will possess. Psalm 43, 4, joy and praise are in the future. And Psalm 43, 5, praise that will come. And what I want to put before you here at the very beginning of our time is just this one thought, just this one thought for you to think of. And that is, if we are to ever remember the joy that we are to wait for, the joy that we are to wait for implies that first we must possess that joy to know what it is. If we're waiting for a joy, if we're reflecting back on a joy, then that means that joy had to at one time exist in your heart. Because the greatest insurance for tomorrow is assurance of today. You get that? The greatest insurance for tomorrow is assurance for today. In other words, what I'm living right now is the down payment of what I shall draw upon later. The greatest security in the days of darkness is to remember the days of light. So what you begin to fill up today in your mind becomes your spiritual reservoir for the future. And if you don't have joyful memories of faithfulness now, you have to start to carve out those memories today. If you don't have joyful memories of what God has done in your life, not only do you need to examine your heart, but you need to make that foundation sure and solid even today. Does that make sense? So we begin now for preservation of tomorrow. And the first way you can do that, and the first way that you can preach to yourself to escape spiritual depression, the first point he wants us to remember is that when we're in doubt and despair, number one, If you're taking notes, remember the joy of public devotion to God. Remember the joy of public devotion to God. And we see this in the very first five verses. It begins in the superscription, For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they are saying to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? 
Wait for God, for I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. Now, again, I want you to notice here that in verse 5 comes that refrain that we talked about in the very beginning. I've already mentioned that refrain that will be echoed again in Psalm 42 at the end and at the end of Psalm 43, because this refrain is really the main theme of the entire piece. Namely, we must stop listening to the despair of our souls and replace those groanings by preaching to ourselves the truth and our hope about God. And that is the point of the psalm, as I've said in general. But here's something very specific, and I want you to notice it with me. I think it's going to be very, very helpful. Each of these sections, I want you to notice that there's a particular aspect of hoping in God that the writer is addressing in this depression. And I want to show you that it is expressed in its fullness in our case, by working backwards. So I'm going to start in verse 5, and we're going to work our way back to verse 1 just to make this point. So we've already looked at verse 5. Let me just begin in verse 4. And notice here that the psalmist is recalling his past participation in public devotion to God in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. The way he shook himself out of his spiritual depression the way he preached to himself and provoked himself and prodded himself and gave himself just a good wake-up call and shout is to recall the memory of his past when he led the progression of the people of God to the house of God where there was joy and thanksgiving and blessing and, yes, festival. Verse 4, these things. What things? What things are you talking about? The things I'm about to recall to you I remember and pour out my soul within me. So what's he saying here? What I'm about to tell you, reader, what I'm about to tell you, singer, is that I'm going to pour out my soul. These are the things that I must must pour out to you because they drown my heart over and over again. These things take my despair away. When? I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God. So here's the first remembrance. Here's the very first remembrance, the first joy I call to mind. The first message that you and I are to preach to ourselves is I remember how I participated in the joy of public worship. Public worship. Now that makes total sense to us once we remember that the superscription that I read to you just a moment ago says that this psalm is for the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now a mascal is one of those terms that we are fully uncertain about. I have read deeply. It seems to be that the term is either a word of wisdom and teaching, but it also could be a musical performance term since it appears at the very beginning of the psalm. That means that it is a term that to inform the musicians of how it is that they must proceed in the execution of this song. Because this is emotional, because it's reminiscent of, of a musical kind of spiritual purpose behind it, they are basically saying to the composers, this is going to be a mood, minor key, slower tempo. It could be that the musicians saw that term mascal and they knew exactly what the tempo was supposed to be in the style of the piece. And who is it that's supposed to perform this song? Well, it says the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the ones to perform it who have a long history. If you want to study anything about the sons of Korah, we don't have time for that today. But for our purposes, just know they were singers. How about that? 
They were singers. They were musical members of the priesthood. They were those who were devoted believers who had an active role in worshiping God in ancient Israel. And specifically here, the writer says that he was the leader of the procession. He was the leader of the procession. Now, when he says procession, you and I might automatically think back to how in ancient times Jewish tribes would all make the uphill journey to Jerusalem. We see that in Psalm 122, where they would ascend to the three annual pilgrimages that are in Deuteronomy 16.16. It says that three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, at the festival of unleavened bread, the festival of weeks, and the festival of tabernacles. No one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. So because of that, as the pilgrims are ascending up to Jerusalem, traveling to those feasts, and they would sing, as we know in the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent on their travels, they would land eventually at the temple grounds, full of joy, full of thanksgiving, and the Levites would be the one, would sing these songs of ascent, and then, of course, it would also lead them into songs in the temple itself. And I tell you that because the psalmist is telling us here that at one point in his life, listen, at one point, he was the man up front. He was the one who led all the Jewish travelers as they sang these songs of ascent. He was the one that sang the loudest. He was the one that waved his arms to keep them in tempo. He was the one who was guarding the time and the beat. And then he adds, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. This was his life. This was his entire life to lead the people of God As they walk slowly, which is something the text emphasizes in the Hebrew, step by step to the house of God, physically, just emotionally erupting in joy and thanksgiving because it was a time of festival. It was a time of ritualistic merrymaking. It was with a crowd, a throng of people that were there roaring and anticipating, worshiping God in his presence in the temple the tabernacle. Now, I say it that way because I want you to remember, and I think it's hard because we spend so much time in the New Testament. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes that we, that people would be going to the temple, going to the sanctuary, if you will, the tabernacle, full of joy and thanksgiving, shouting. We, we have a hard time sometimes relating to that as we drive to Grace Community Church on a Sunday morning. Uh, can you imagine? Can you imagine rolling your car window down on the freeway as you're exiting Roscoe Boulevard and seeing other believers right next to you just honking and shouting with joy because they're going to go to Grace Community Church and because of the expectation of morning worship. I just love that idea. And can you imagine Bill Brennenstein being right in front of everybody, driving the lead car, kind of swerving back and forth, you know, like the highway patrol do to kind of slow everybody down, and then be in front of the multitudes with a shout of joy, honking and yelling from deep within because we know that the congregation at Grace Community Church was about to do yet another time of worship. You see, I mean, that would be amazing. That would be astounding, leading the people of God as they sang the privilege of coming to the house of God. Well, that's what the psalmist experienced. I actually talked to Bill about this this week. I did, because I was like so enthralled with the idea, and I said, you know, Bill, look, you stand in front of 
thousands of people every week. You have hundreds of people behind you in the choir, uh, thousands more even on the internet. Uh, What is that like to be leading the service of God before the people? Because that has a place in biblical history. He's he's singing and singing. He's not dancing, but he's singing before the Lord. I see him move a little bit sometimes, but not much. And because the anticipation of being before the people of God in the house of God was epic. A biblical historian and scholar, Alfred Ellersheim, in his book, The Temple, just writes this as a way to get us to expect this. He says, as the pilgrim bands came upon from the parts of the country to the great feast, they must have stood enthralled when its beauty first burst upon their gaze. Not merely remembrances of the past or the sacred association connected with the present, but the grandeur of the scene before them must have kindled their admiration into enthusiasm. For Jerusalem was a city of palaces and right royally enthroned as none other. Now, I don't want you to get distracted with this because, again, I want this theme to kind of connect back to what it is as the main thrust. But it's important to note, I believe, that we aren't positive whether this throng of people were coming to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem or it was the tabernacle that moved from time to time. I wish I could be more accurate. I tried very hard. But regardless, what we are positive about is that this psalmist had in his memory banks, in his own heart, a detailed record of the kind of exuberant joy that just filled his soul every single time he worshiped the Lord publicly with the people. And that, that memory is the essence of what it is that he's preaching back to himself to escape despair. That's what he's saying. It was this active participation in public worship, those times of being with the people of God when they're all together, striving to be before the place of God, delighting in the presence of God. That's what held his soul intact. And you had to think about that today, didn't you, as you heard Grace Chung singing. You had to think about that because we've never heard something like that. I didn't even know what she was saying. It, 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 nor did you because... Because the truth is, it's 18th century poetry she's singing. And that's why I did a little explanation before she sang, because Bill Bramstein came to me and said, I don't think people are going to get it. But what we got was, it was heavenly. It was heavenly. It was Handel. It was, it was outstanding. And to see the faces of the people around me as that music was going reminded me of what it is that we have to recall to ourselves in those moments of despair to remember those times of public worship that incentivized us and that gave us that great, great joy. So it's so important for us to grasp because, you know, we live in a day where public attendance in the worship of God has been so dwindled down and so marginalized for the most part and largely forgotten that now most people, many people, watch worship service uh, through the internet. Uh, it's not that that's bad if you're sick or you're out of town or something like that, but they don't ever have to get themselves out of bed and dress themselves to be with the multitudes. And the pandemic definitely did not help. That's why we had the movie, The Essential Church, and why it was made, because being together physically, this is the point, as a church was essential. It wasn't that the church as a whole wasn't seen as essential. It was the public participation of worshiping God together that was essential. 
And I just don't think we ever realize the privilege that we have together. I know we don't. I know because I don't. And I've been here years and years and years, and I still have to pinch myself and remind myself that it's not just a light fact that, that we're here together. It's not just an incidental thing that we're all here in this room even right now, worshiping God, thinking about God, singing about God. So worshiping together in the ancient mindset is a little different, however, than we have it because here it's different in the sense that we understand what Jesus taught in Mark 4. There, meeting God in a place was essential. Now, listen to this, and I'm going to draw this out. You remember John 4 very well. John 4, the massive encounter Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. And there's a point in the dialogue. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, you can. John 4, the whole section, uh, verse 1 all the way through 26. There's a point in the exchange where the Samaritan woman makes a very interesting point along these lines. And she has a question. Remember this? And she's asking about worship. And she says in John 4, 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, that was a very intense question. That was not some silly question in the heart and the mind of the Samaritans and the Jews. Where they ought to worship? What is the place? Where do we go? What is it that we're supposed to do? How are we to worship God? And where are we to worship God was in the forefront. Again, worship. Where do you pour your heart out before God? Where, where do you celebrate God? Where do you honor God? Where do you give the sacrifices before God? And that's important just for this case as we're looking at Psalm 42 because God's presence in the mindset of the psalmist, God's presence was always associated with a place. It was always associated with a tabernacle or a tent or a a temple. So, So in the Old Testament, the knowledge of where is this place was very important, of course, to the Samaritan woman. To be sure, God had ordained the Old Testament that his presence be directly associated with the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. So people, as they entered into that presence, they sensed that they came to the place where God had appointed and especially where he wanted to be identified. I don't have time to go into it, but even the smells, even what it is that were created for the people, all the senses were to be activated as they went into the temple because this was a special place, the most lovely place. And so even though our Lord goes on in John 4 to explain to this poor desperate woman that ultimately God is spirit, and is not confined to a location, still the Samaritan woman is expressing a sentiment that the ancient world held to, and that is God is more fully worshipped in a place with other believers. Think about that. God is more fully worshipped in a place with other believers. So the issue for the psalmist is to remember the days of public worship to incentivize his soul in the moments of despair. Does that make sense? That's where he's going. Now, according to Don Whitney, uh, a wonderful uh, writer and pastor, says there's an element of worship in, in Christianity that cannot be experienced in private worship or watching worship. There are some graces and blessings that God gives only in meeting together with other believers. That's in his book, Spiritual, Depre- uh, Spiritual Disciplines. Richard Foster says, when we are truly gathered into worship, things occur that could never occur alone, right? 
Martin Luther was famous for saying, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. When I'm by myself, it is not the same as it is with the congregation and the, and the multitudes together where all of us at the same time in the same place are worshiping God together. That's why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.24 says, don't neglect worshiping together. Don't neglect the assembling together as is the habit of some. Of some. And the psalmist knew that. He understood that and he lived by that standard. And he understood that worship with the masses, listen, in public, with the masses, was just not some external ceremony where singing and jubilant and, and, and joy externally was in focus. No, the source of the joy, the source of the furnace of the fire that broke its way through in that place with those people was having a full sense of God, a full sense of the worship of God. And we know that because look back at verse 1 of our text. Now we go to the worshiping God is his heart's desire. Verse 1, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. This is the reason he led the procession. This is the reason that he sang and he danced and he shouted the way he did He longed to worship God. That's the incentivizing factor behind everything he did. He longed to worship the true God. And yet now, and we're going to get into this in a moment, the predicament he finds himself in, the present issue that he finds himself in, is he's far from that place of worship. He's no longer in that place that he once enjoyed leading the throng. And so now he pants and he thirsts for the living God, the God that he longs to appear before, verse 2, When shall I come and appear before God because he was away from his presence? You see this from time to time when people visit away from Grace Church. They go to a different town. Maybe even they move away and then they come back. And I've heard this probably, if I've heard it once, I've heard it 50 times, where people say, finally, I'm home. I'm back home. I'm home where I should have been. Well, why? Because when they were away, whatever the circumstances were, whether they were in church or not, it was troubling. I remember when I was a young boy and we would go on vacations, no matter where we were, my dad would make us go to a church, whether it was a charismatic church, whether it was Roman Catholic church. We went to a church. One time we, we skied up to a church and it had a dock and we went up there, got the skis, put them in the boat, went in there dripping wet, uh, sang some songs or whatever, got back in the boat and went skiing again because you don't miss church but it was what kind of church what kind of church were we at which was you know poor dad he didn't know uh he's in heaven but he knows now but at the time uh we were just going to church you got to go to church but his issue the psalmist issue is no it has to be that the reason i go is because i'm motivated by this thirst this deer like panting for the water brook kind of desire and he tells us that something had separated him. Something had separated the psalmist from the house of God. Something had disrupted his soul. And verse 3 says that the issue manifested itself in tears that he says were his food day and night. He had a broken heart every moment of the day and despair was so horrible. Verse 5, he's now seen weeping. The verse 3, tears have flown down so much from his eyes into his mouth that that's all that he's eating. The only thing he eats is just the tears that are coming down in the salt. No bread, just brokenness. That's where he's at. 
And so again, we find that the reason here in the second part of verse 3 is because all day long those around him are saying, where is your God? Where is he? His faith is being attacked. Note this. His love for God, his longing for the presence of God is being attacked. His longing even to worship with the people of God, once more with the multitudes in the house of God, is being made fun of. And it makes those unbelievers around him shake their head when they see how miserable he is. And so they mock him and this invisible God that he says he worships so devoutly. And so he begins, listen, to listen to the mockery of those voices more than preach to himself the memory of God's past faithfulness to him. This is so vital. There came a point in his life, whether it was from exile because of a foreign government forcing his departure on Jerusalem or some isolated personal issue in his own life. We're going to look at that a little bit more in the next point. He he was being pursued perhaps by an enemy. Uh, We'll again go into it. He was in a faraway place that he didn't want to be and the voices all around him became white noise. And the white noise of his life was no matter what he tried to do to shun those taunts, no matter what he did to try to imagine that he could just wave those, where is God? Where is your God? Where is your God now? He came flooding back to his mind over and over again like a swarm of bees. He couldn't get away from them. So wherever he found himself, he was alienated from the people of God and the house of God, and that made him sad. It made him very, very sad. So try to wrap your mind around that predicament just for a moment because he was away from public worship of God, and he felt as if God was far away. His enemies mocked him for it. Remember, the psalmist is told, and we're told in the other psalms as well, that that that's all that the Old Testament saint wanted was to be in the temple. Uh, Psalm 27, 4, the worshiper longed to live their days in the temple so that they may see the fear, the, the beauty of the Lord. It says in Psalm 50, from Jerusalem, his presence flashes out in perfect beauty. In Psalm 63, 2, without that personal, physical encounter with God in the house of God, their souls felt like they were parched, waterless countryside. In Psalm 65, they craved to be satisfied with the pleasures of his house. Psalm 84, 3, they, they are like a bird in the nest because they can only be at ease in the house of God. The psalmist sings in Psalm 84, one day of those pleasures is better to me than a lifetime, a lifetime spent elsewhere. And so they, they long, the Old Testament believer longed to be at that place where God was, the tabernacle, the temple, to appear before the presence of God, as he says, physically thirsting, as we see even in verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. This is why he's saying this, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? Now listen to me here and really think about this. There should be, really think about this. There should be in every believer's heart, every single believer's heart, an unsettled yearning that only worship can satisfy. There should be in your heart an unsettled yearning that only being with the people of God can satisfy. There should be a great need to not only worship God in spirit and in truth, but in public. It's not just in spirit and truth. We're going to talk about that in a second. We're going to talk about that other focus that he had that helped him in his time of need. But but listen, past participation in the life of the assembly 
doesn't guarantee protection against despair at all, but it promotes, in fact, but the lack of it promotes despair. So let me say that again. Past participation in the life of the assembly doesn't guarantee protection against despair, but the lack of it being together with the saints promotes despair in every way. Alexander McLaren a wonderful, again, Scottish pastor said, he was depressed because he was shut out from the tokens of God's presence. And because he was depressed, he shut himself out from the reality of the presence. Psalm 63, one says, my, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. So think of it, though God is near to all of us, the Bible says, for Jesus said we worship him in spirit and truth, the reality of the situation was without public gathering together in the house of God, he hungered and felt for God in a way that grew to pain. He pained for God. So there is a truth here that our hunger and our thirst is not only real and living reality psychologically, physiologically, but the relief from them is a pre-consuming, should be a pre-consuming passion for the people of God to be here, to be with God's people. So from the very beginning, the struggle of mankind has been seen in the sin, hungering and thirsting for God. And I just want to put this before you because obviously I'm preaching to the choir, no pun intended, because we're here We're here. We understand the value of it. We understand the importance of gathering together, of being with one another, of worshiping God at the same time, of hearing Pastor John, as he said, and I took notes as he was uh, preaching about remember, repent, and repeat. Even as we hear that together, we acknowledge together, yes, that's true. Yes, that's what we are to do. And there's nothing that can go better than that. There's nothing really in our experience, even listening to a, a, a recording of it or watching it on, on live TV, there's, there's nothing that's the same. But the real question is, do you have the desire to be with God? Do you have the desire, as Augustine said, to, to have your heart be filled? He said it this way, great are you, O God, and exceedingly worthy of praise. You rouse us so that praising you may bring us joy because you have made us and drawn us to yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And that's what compelled even Pascal to write, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man that cannot be filled by any other created thing but only by God the creator. So while we're shouting excuse me, while the critics are shouting, where is your God? A criticism that he's going to repeat again in verse 10. The psalmist is saying, when shall I come before God? Yes, they're crying at me, where's your God? And I'm asking myself, when, oh God, are you going to let me come there? So wherever he was writing this psalm, his mind in this moment went back to the time where he had seen something that has become for us this beautiful picture for thousands and thousands of years of this yearning, this this scene in a a deer panting for water. A deer panting for water, just like his soul was panting for God. Perhaps he he was about to compose this and he was watching this majestic animal before him and, and he began to recite this psalm and his heart was so overwhelmed with the imagery that he saw that he 
carefully, maybe without even moving his hand because he didn't want to startle the, the delicate animal, started to realize the connection between what he saw in front of him in his isolation and what his heart was reflecting. It's interesting. Those that study the behavior of wildlife will tell you something that it's very gripping to me, and that is you wouldn't know it unless that was your world that you lived in. But it's a helpful point, I think, that illuminates what's being said here. Usually, deer don't pant for water. In fact, the only reason deer usually pant is because they're being pursued by an enemy or are wounded. But they pant and they seek water immediately when they're in danger. In other words, the enemy had sought out the deer, so she runs for water. She pants and drinks because she is in danger and she needs drink. So our soul pants for God the greatest when we're being attacked the greatest. Our soul knows that as we drink deeply, that that can only come, the the source of that water can only come from the living God going again back to John 4, the one who has given us the water that indeed satisfies forever and only Yahweh can provide. And it's just times like this, just to kind of dwindle this down, that we're told that you have to stop listening to the voices that try to wound your faith. You have to stop listening, especially in the culture that we live in. I just met with a man this week who's one of our friends who have been here probably for over 20 years. I think he's I think he's been here maybe even 30 years. And he sat down and he said, Tom, is there any way I can just have a conversation with you? And I said, sure. So we had coffee. And he had a list of just all the things that are bothering him that are coming from his brother who, who used to be a Christian and now has abandoned the faith from this woman that he talks to who is a Seventh-day Adventist and who is like attacking every single thing John MacArthur ever says. And so he just had this list of things like, like how do I deal with this? And I think that those voices are there. I think those voices are crying for you to send you into despair and depression. And it's times like this that the psalmist says, don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to the voices outside of you. Don't listen to the voices inside of you. Allow yourself to preach to yourself, to preach the truth to yourself, to know that one truth that you have and that I have, and the mark of that is because you're here today, is preach to yourself that I'm with the people of God. I have the assurance even of my salvation, the fact that this is where I want to be, and this is the truth that I agree with, and this is the thing that medicates my soul. This is where I want, and I'm yearning for that God who is in this place, who is among these believers, because this is the antidote to my despair. So every time I've mentioned this point, and we're going to end it, I have way over-prepared today. Uh, um, that's only my first point, and I am like, my second point is really long. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, we got a week off, I guess, so I can like, take it easy tomorrow. But, uh, but every time that I've mentioned this one thought, just in passing to folks, I've been obsessed with this all week long, that they've heard me explain this truth, they kind of wag their hair, heads in agreement. They're going, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, and you know, yeah, that's, that's true. And then they just kind of appease me to look past me to see, but what really should I do? What really should I do to get this depression, this anxiety away? A woman and her husband met with me this week. She's been in and out of the hospital for anxiety. It's been the result of alcohol abuse that she allowed herself to indulge in because 
she has intense physical pain that she deals with, intense physical pain that people are just completely baffled by what the reason is, and it's been happening for months and months. And she listens to sermons, and she listens to the Bible being read, and she watches the worship services, and yet something's missing, and she doesn't know what it is. She needs to be with the multitudes, yes. She needs to be dedicating herself to the public worship of God here with the saints, yes. But listen here, listen here, and this is how we'll end. Without a yearning for God, without a yearning for God more than a yearning to get out of your depression, without a yearning for God, without a need to commune with the Almighty, it's just smoke and mirrors. It's just a Band-Aid. It's external. And so she shakes her head in agreement with me as she's looking for the next truth to help her. But the next truth that can help her, again, is under the same category of remembering the joy, the joy first of her past public devotion to God, and then number two, remembering the joy of private dependence upon God. And you're going to say to yourself, wait a second, you just said public joy and the worship of God was essential, and now you're going to tell me you need to remember the joy of private dependence, private versus public? What are you doing here? It's not me. It's verses 6 through 11, and we're going to do more about that and talk about that next time. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time, and your word is way deeper than any of us can uh, dig. It has verses and thoughts and, and commentary and exposition that is way beyond anything that one man or woman could ever grasp. But what we do grasp is what is here on the surface for us to grasp, and that is when our souls are upset, when we hear the critics around us and we allow their their criticism to engulf us, that we shall hope in you, O God, and we shall be in your presence, in your intimate presence again, and that the way that we are now is not the way that we shall always be. This too shall pass, for you, O God, are the God of not just the past and the present, but the future. Uh, Give us understanding in these things, and... uh, Bless us for the rest of this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen.